welcome to the Subversive Studies Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Glenn. Today I am joined by Jeremy Johnson, who is an author, editor, scholar, teacher, and lecturer, to discuss his new book, Seeing Through the World, Gene Gebser and Integral Consciousness from Revelor Press. In our conversation, we get into the core aspects of Gebser's philosophy on consciousness and the evolution of consciousness and all kinds of elements that Jeremy has mixed in to his particular study of Gebser, which is very rich, very um, vibrant and exciting. It's a fantastic book and I really enjoy talking with Jeremy about all of this. Uh, he has an amazing mind and a really strong passion for this material and it comes through. Jeremy is the founder of Nora Learning, a conscious media learning platform and also editor and curator of philosophies at Revelor Press. He ha is, has worked as a staff editor for Reality Sandwich and contributed to multiple publications such as Omni, Disinformation, Evolve and Ascend, Consciousness, Lifestyle Magazine, and Evolve. He's fascinated by the intersections of new media, integral philosophy, depth psychology, cultural studies, and we get into all these areas and more in our conversation. Please feel free to share with family and friends and colleagues, and don't forget to subscribe. Give us ratings on iTunes and Stitcher and SoundCloud and all those things. I want to dive right in because we go into a lot of depth and, and talk for a while, so I want to invite you to sit back and enjoy. Thanks again so much for listening. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Jeremy Johnson. Because um, the book's fantastic. I was so into it. And like, I really, I really appreciated the ways, first of all, I just found your writing so clear and alive. Like I f there's this real spark that kind of I felt pulsating through it. And so I was um, just in terms of like beyond the, the content, but but kind of, um, I don't know if stylistically or, or just sort of energetically, it felt very fresh to me and uh, made it very en enjoyable and, and exciting to read. And um, yeah, the other part is, is I really appreciated the way you kind of wove... Um, kind of like non-consciousness figures into the work. I feel like that really enriched it. And um, yeah, people like Walter Benjamin and, and Deleuze and, you know, this kind of you're talking about um, Mark Fisher, and, you know, these and more of the sort of socio-cultural political element and, and like not making it just about some kind of abstract like consciousness thing that's somehow happening and um but felt very applicable so um yeah it seemed like uh it was brilliant the way you're you're able to kind of weave all those elements in in a way that feels very culturally relevant 
Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, you know, I think it's just my, my influence, like, uh, William Irwin Thompson has been like a massive influence for me, his, his style that he calls mind jazz. And, and it's this kind of weaving together of pop culture and he'll bring in kind of a Marxist and then he'll bring in a transhumanist and then he'll bring in a, a, an esotericist and kind of just, or a scientist and put them all together and, and see those sort of connections. Um, and I think that kind of idea of, of, of making these sort of figurations of meaning in these different disciplines is just sort of the style of thinking that we're entering into anyway, in terms of, you know, the networked age and the internet age. So, so I, I very much like want to embody that in, in my own writing as best as I can. Um, and in some ways too, what's interesting about Gepser is that he called his approach, um, uh, cultural philosophy as method and art. And I, I like that he describes it as, um, as, as, an art as well as a kind of a methodology that, that an academic could use because it's similar again to what William Irwin Thompson describes as this Wissenkunst, right? This knowledge art. So, um, and, and then the, like the last part of that is just, you know, if, if a theory or some kind of abstract, you know, grand theory about consciousness evolution isn't, isn't finding its embodiment in a culture in the sort of the body of a culture in the stories and the narratives and in the works of art, then what are we doing with it and, and how applicable is it actually to understanding what's going on? So there's kind of like a, I think a circle between the abstract and then kind of finding how that, that finds its way, you know, back into culture. And uh, Mark Fisher is a good example of somebody who does that too um, with sort of his theory with Marxism and, and, and the left and then pop culture. I love how he sort of, he practiced that as well in his writing. Yeah. So let's get into it. You, you were, mentioning a few minutes ago just in terms of uh like being bold about uh asserting Gebser's significance um and so uh, so maybe you could just talk a little about why why his work is so important and and relevant and um yeah we can go from there sure yeah so um just a, a few kind of like uh, basics, right? He was born in 1905. Um, he passed away in 1973. So that was kind of like the general era of, of, of when he was working and living and writing. Um, and, you know, he kind of began as a scholar of poetry and as a kind of bohemian himself. He, he was um, kind of born in, I think it was modern day Prussia or modern day Germany, but at the time it was Prussia. And um, he spent some time kind of doing college work. He kind of dropped out of that. He worked at a bank for a while and then he kind of just let loose and became a bohemian in like probably the, the early twenties or so and started wandering through Europe. Um, I think he consciously changed his name from Hans. He was born with the name Hans, uh, changed it to Jean after he left uh, Germany during, you know, the twenties the, the when, um, you know, fascism was on the rise. And I think he wanted to distance himself a bit from that. So um, he spent some time in France and he spent some time in Spain and he was always hanging out. He had this great capacity to, to just make friends wherever he went. So um, he, he was always hanging out with uh, the poets and, and the artists and uh, the scholars. He, he learned, he had a, a, such a capacity for language. Um, he, he, he picked up Spanish right away during his Spanish years and he was kind of tracing um, his favorite poet Rilke and his footsteps through Europe as a kind of a spiritual poetic pilgrimage. Um, 
so he started doing some kind of educational work in the Spanish government. And then Spain started to get overtaken by everything that was going on in, in Europe at the time. And uh, uh, he barely escaped with his life. Like he left two hours before the border closed. And that, uh, before his apartment was bombed, the border was closed. And he was actually arrested at the border and nearly executed as just, you know, just some, some kind of riffraff and, and um, Lorca, his friend, um, he spent some years with in, in Spain uh, working on things and doing translations for Lorca, he was killed at the border. So he really kind of witnessed what was going on in, in the 20th century in Europe firsthand. He kind of saw these mass movements and war breaking out and sort of the, the breakdown of, of, of uh, European Western civilization uh, as it was described, you know, um, between, you know, being born in 1905, probably at least semi-consciously living through World War One, and then coming of age, you know, leading up to World War Two, he must have really kind of felt the, the, the intensity of the events that were happening. Um, and I think with his, his interest and his sensitivity in, in poetry and, and art, and um, he, he had this feeling, a sensitivity towards, there's something going on with, with European language and um, painters and poets, there's something changing. There's this kind of this, this eruption of this new style of thinking and relating to the world. And he's really interested in that. And I think that's what drove his scholarship. So he started to publish like um, uh, early, early kind of versions of what would eventually be his, what is called his, you know, his magnum opus, ever present origin, um, where he was trying to describe this new style of thinking in Europe that was emerging and sort of out of the, out of the chaos and, and disruption and, and, and breakdown of these older forms of thinking. Um, and I think art was his way into that, you know, his sensitivity to art and these poets and their kind of spiritual sensibility was his way into that understanding, uh, especially Rilke. Um, but also, you know, when he was in, he, after he left Spain, he spent some time in France right before World War II, and he was meeting a lot of the, you know, French intellectuals at the time. He met Picasso there. Um, so he, you know, I guess meeting Picasso, you get the sense that, okay, this, this guy's doing something very, very different than other forms of uh, other artists that came before. Um, so he began to really articulate this as, as a perspectivity. He was saying, you know, art is not just trying to capture and render measurable space anymore. And, and the European world seems to be even breaking down in terms of its sort of uh, um, scientific materialist worldview of positivism and progress and um, uh, sort of the, the um, I guess the, scientific materialism of his time he saw as this kind of you know it was all breaking down and, and of course germany was triumphing all of all of those things while still doing horrific things so he kind of was very distanced from all of that and very um uh critical of all of that so um yeah he spent a number of years there and this is why i think he's important though um between his time you know living with all these different poets and artists that are now very well known historically and just in retrospect um, I think he sensed in all of them this new mentality that was emerging. And I think his articulation of that aperspectival mentality, the sort of integral structure of consciousness that he described, um, ended up being really uh, prescient. It's, it's, it's so resonant with the time that we're living in. And his articulations and, and even condemnations of Europe's breakdown, um, those same critiques, I think, speak to us today, that he was able to kind of get under... Um, the 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 ideologies of the time um, and the 
again, the, the kind of random happenings of the time that all sort of seem discombobulated or disconnected, he, he, he was able to sense some kind of underlying thing that was going on. And I think his sensitivity towards that transformation opened, up, opened him up to this idea that, oh, there were other transformations. Mm -hmm. And okay, I'm going to be this great German scholar and write about all of them in this, in this massive tome. So that's what he eventually did. Um, but he's really thorough. And I think he, he wanted to, in order to speak about this new transformation, he understood that he had to represent the whole thing. And that's sort of a style of the integral form of thinking is to try to express the whole like you can't really segment or divide anything in any kind of truly fundamental way so I think the reason why he was so meticulous was to try to express this whole dynamic what he called um, uh, phenomenology of awakening right phenomenology of awakening consciousness that was going on not just in the 20th century in Europe but was sort of the story um, and the the process of, of consciousness right um, so that's, that's a, a longer answer for why is he important. I think he's, he's just as insightful as, as, you know, as I mentioned on the back cover, C.G. Jung, uh, Eric Newman, you know, these other thinkers who wrote about these sort of grand general, um, uh, um, in some, in some way, their narratives or theories, uh, about the whole evolution of human consciousness. And, um, since he's not as well represented in the English speaking world, I wanted to just get an accessible text out there so people could at least um, have a place to start rather than, you know, a, a dense giant tome of a book that's ever present origin. So, yeah, that's, that's really helpful. And, and I think you did it. And I, I feel like, um, yeah, like you mentioned that it, you really, it does feel really culturally relevant for today. And I think that intersection of kind of, um, you know, I think it's like it's really helpful and we can get into this more when we, when we talk about um, kind of where we are right now in this time. But to have some kind of contextualization of what's going on uh, in the and from from a sort of wider uh, lens and sort of a bigger picture and, um, you know, as a as a sort of species and and culturally and and sort of consciousness wise so I, th I feel like um, that contextualization um, is really helpful in terms of thinking about this moment uh, in time and um, and and yeah trying to trying to make sense of it because it's a it's a pretty strange um, moment right now for sure uh, so let's talk about some of Gebser's main ideas and uh yeah i think it, it could be helpful just to maybe go through a little uh overview of his notion of the three worlds uh you mentioned the the unperspectival perspectival and aperspectival um and then also um his structures of consciousness which is kind of his core idea uh as i as i understand it so um, yeah, maybe you could give us a little overview uh, on those. Sure, yeah. Um, so all of them, and he says it outright too in Ever Present Origin, um, that he's using a perspectival as a kind of a reference point because you know, the word perspective is in there. And he's 
kind of starting with what we learn in like um, art classes, right? Okay, what is perspective? It's it's um, having a realistic depiction of three dimensional space in in an in a in a two dimensional image, like um, a work of art, a painting, an illustration, or something. Um, but he's not just interested in sort of the evolution of, of art history. He's he's interested in this. Well, why did we suddenly start to depict space realistically, and why did we start talking about it in all of culture and all and and sort of all of you know Western civilization in the Renaissance? This kind of explosion of these new styles of thinking. Um, so he's using that as a kind of a, a leaping off point to understand that, you know, there have been, there's been an unperspectable age and that was very different. It's not inferior, but it's, it's just a different style of thinking. It's a different orientation to the world than what we as, as moderns would describe as perspectable and, and with a three-dimensional uh, sense of, of reality, um, you know, a, a linear sense of time and those kinds of things. Um, and of course, a perspectival is this sort of this this nascent um, uh, latent structure that's emerging. But um, you know, just to kind of go through it a little bit, you know, the unperspectival world is is um, much more kind of uh, one word he uses is psychistic oriented. So it's kind of image oriented. It's it's more akin to the the dreaming world, the sort of um, imagination. Um, and he uses very you know very frequently artistic examples and he starts with medieval Europe in, in ever-present origin by describing like well look at the kind of enclosure that these works of art had they were kind of in this gilt ground right um, and these flat two-dimensional iconography images they were trying to depict there was something going on there that was very sophisticated but it had more to do with the the realm of symbol and meaning right a realm of the imagination than the waking spatial realm so, and he kind of ties that back, interestingly, he sort of starts with that sort of enclosure, uh, the, the guilt enclosure, and sort of traces it back to these, I guess you could call them uh, primal um, architectural spaces, right? He, he talks about the vault and, and the cave, and he kind of takes you back to the, the Paleolithic and describes, um, and the Neolithic, and he describes, you know, some of this architecture that's found around the world, um, and where ancient peoples put together these uh, dolmen, right? So there's like a pillar and then there's something on top of the pillar, like Stonehenge is a good example. But then of course, you know, um, the cave systems in the Paleolithic that we use for these rituals, there's something important about the the vault and the enclosure um, for him. And I think it sort of stands in for what the dreaming world is like and what the imagination is like, what being in a dream is like. You aren't in this waking space. It's the kind of a self-luminescent reality where things are, are um, suffused with meaning and presence. And um, I think the cave for him is sort of a symbolic expression of that. But it's also, you know, I don't know if I want to use the word archetypal, but it is kind of this very core primal aspect of, of being human, like relating back to enclosures and caves. And um, we've brought that with us into civilization through amphitheaters and, and um, you know, these kinds of enclosures where we perform and speak and, and have this kind of acoustic um, surround. So this is, these all um, have to do with the unperspectival world, this acoustic surround, this enclosed dreaming world. Um, and of course, many ancient cosmologies had these kind of, you know, uh, disks and spheres and enclosures. So you can, you have all of that. Um, another good example might even just be um, some ar uh, archaeologists uh, find uh, uh, dig sites, right, where in the Paleolithic 
or even older, like Neanderthals, were sometimes buried with red ochre. So there's this association with the womb, maybe. Uh, we don't really know what they, what they were thinking and what their belief system were, but um, there is this sense of an enclosure, a sense of, of the womb. Uh, uh, the Tao has images like this as well. So, so he gives us all these examples of the unperspectival world um, as a psychic imagistic orientation, where the realm of symbol and meaning is sort of diffused in the world and the human being as, as, a, as a sense of self is more participating in the world. Like Owen Barfield, another sort of evolution of consciousness scholar has a similar concept. He calls it original participation. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a good kind of corollary to Gepster's understanding. Um, so, uh, so yeah, we, we have this vaulted cave, we have the kind of enclosure, this kind of mythical space, we're gonna get into the mythical structure. Um, and then sort of out of that, or did you want to jump into? No, I'm, I'm just uh, having my mic up, but no, go ahead. <laughs> okay, okay. No, it's fine if you want to uh, jump in with, with yeah. any comments as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, so like, yeah, yeah. Um, there's this in, sort of enclosed psychistic space that um, he sort of carries forward and he observes the kind of early uh, Hellenistic architecture, like Euclidean space. He mm -hmm. talks about um, the sort of Egyptian vaulted spaces where the sense of space is different. He's saying even in civilization, even in early civilization, the sense of space in our architecture is talking about and is describing a different form of consciousness. Um, and some of the interpretations Gepster has in, in, in his writings, I think are, they're almost um, a, a kind of a poetic insight, you know, because sometimes he will use a scholar to prove his point, but then other times he'll he'll just have this like wildly insightful, interesting interpretation of what the vault means in in um, let's say in Christianity, right? So he thinks that the masculine and feminine is a kind of these genders kind of come together in Christian architecture, the vault and the pillar, kind of the phallus and the womb, and he hypothesizes that perhaps this sort of engendered, um, you know, the emerging of you know, in the image of Western civilization, the emergence of Christ, you know, the man who will make his own space. So there's this kind of awakening of consciousness that's present in a lot of his um, exegesis of myth, mm. which is interesting. But I wanted to kind of lean into that a little bit because that kind of moves us into the perspectival world. Um, and probably the most important example he gives, he leaps us forward in, in talking about these um, perspectives, but he leaps us forward to Petrarch. Um, this famous uh, Renaissance humanist or early Renaissance humanist. And he has this uh, passage where um, he's, he's doing some translation in ever-present origin where he's describing Petrarch's ascent to Mount Ventoux, which is this kind of famous moment in, in, in at least Western history, right? Um, in, in which he and his brother kind of climb this mountain. And people didn't do this back then for fun. It wasn't like, you know, nature wasn't a spectacle that you kind of looked back on in this sort of pleasant pastoral way mm -hmm. and like just enjoyed the landscape. Um, it had a different, we had a different relationship to it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, that there's a goat herder or something on the mountain tells Petrarch to like go back and why are they doing this? And so, th so there's this kind of a different reference point for understanding space in, in the sort of medieval world. Um, but then nonetheless, he climbs a mountain with his brother. He has this kind of, um, very powerful moment at the ascent at the sort of the top of this mountain he's looking out um he's looking out at the landscape of france and then he's kind of looking back to to uh vienna he's kind of looking back in the direction of italy and he's having this sort of spiritual crisis um where he's feeling really guilty 
that he's up on this mountain and having this sort of, um, like I always joke, it's like a peak experience on this mountain, um, just sort of taking in landscape. And this moment by art historians sort of known as this, oh, well, this is like the first moment where we started to appreciate landscape. I don't know if it's the first or not, but it's certainly a good example of this sort of reorientation in, in, in perspective um, where he's sort of looking out and he opens up St. Augustine's Confessions and then he, um, he, he turns to a page that's describing uh, somebody being on a mountain and looking to the sea. And, 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 and he has this, again, is this sort of synchronistic moment, like Richard Tarnas talks about this as a kind of um, pivotal moment of the West where, you know, St. Augustine himself had a, moment, a pivotal moment opening a book after hearing the voice outside say, uh, look and read. So he opens, um, uh, I think it's the Old Testament, um, and, and he reads from it and he gains some kind of insight and has a kind of a conversion experience opening up Christian Europe, you know, ushering in that civilization. And now Petrarch is opening and reading St. Augustine and having a sort of conversion experience and at least symbolically opening up, you know, Western civilization from the Renaissance onward. Um, so it's this pivotal moment and he writes the letter back to his, his Jesuit mentor in, in Italy as, as a confession. Again, there's this confession layer that Kepser was talking about where um, uh, he's just meditating on his experience and he's saying he's kind of going back and forth between this sort of breathtaking experience of landscape and perspective and, and the beauty and sub sublimity of the, of the spatial world and then feeling really guilty about that and, and bringing to mind, um, I forget who he quotes, but that only the soul is worthy of contemplation. So it's this kind of in-betweenness that Petrarch is, is expressing in the sort of emergence of perspective. Uh, but you start to see it like everywhere. Um, Gebser mentioned so many different um, Renaissance artists. Many of them were Christian or they're working with the church and they're all kind of trying to depict perspective in their art and they're creating, um, you know, um, kind of manifestos and treatises on, on uh, drawing perspective and creating a vanishing point. And Gebser brings up Petrarch and these Vienna artists as constellating this emerging consciousness of perspective, being a self in waking spatial reality that, you know, the eye becomes important and what the eye sees is what's, you know, what, it, what is real is what is measurable. Mm -hmm. And this whole idea of man is the measure of all things begin to kind of come online. So there's this reorientation that sort of cuts us off from this unperspectival participation in these, you know, very beautiful dynamic cosmologies of the spheres and everything. And this kind of narrowing down, but also kind of a liberation of this new waking self. Right. And you get all of these new paintings that start to have depth in them. And, and I, I mentioned in my book, Fra Angelico, right, um, how his earlier painting of the Annunciation has this, you know, Mary and uh, Gabriel in this sort of vault, this kind of enclosure. And literally the, the, the sky, the, the ceiling of the vault is painted with stars, this sort of expressing this kind of unperspectable cosmology. Um, and then outside is the Garden of Eden depicted, you know, Adam and Eve are in this garden and, and just is very symbolic. And then one of his later paintings of the same Annunciation, there's no more vaulted um, stars on, in, on the ceiling. It's just a plain ceiling. There's more depth perspective. And then the, outs, the outdoors is just a pastoral fence with like a garden in the back. So there's this kind of subtle struggle to realize space in perspective. Um, and really just to kind of, you know, because it would take so long to describe all these examples, um, one more might be to, you know, 
Da Vinci is a good example of somebody who really figured out how to kind of break forth into space. And, and Gepster has this quote about, you know, um, this isn't just start and stop with the, the artists. It starts with the, the scientists as well. You know, Kepler and Copernicus, a lot of these guys were lens grinders. So the eye and the lens and, and, and any kind of extension of the eye and measurable space becomes very important. Um, and he has this kind of beautiful passage where Gepser is describing the sort of eruption of space and everything. You know, we, we, we throw away medieval medicine and begin to study anatomy and the circulatory system. Um, and, it, you know, it begins with art, but, you know, da Vinci was doing, you know, dissections of, of human cadavers as well. So there was this fascination with measurable space that just possessed the scientists and the artists. And, and you could kind of watch it. And he sort of paints this emergent picture of this emergent perspectival consciousness. Um, taking hold of us. Um, and so when we get to the 20, 20th century, you know, or even the 19th century, um, that in, in, in a nutshell, um, that perspectival consciousness has sort of outlived itself. It's already kind of run itself down. Um, and the whole idea that Gepster's talking about with the aperspectival is that, you know, we've really kind of master this sort of spatial consciousness it's it's really kind of outlived itself in terms of turning everything into this perspectival point of view and cutting everything down you know the visual pyramid that he describes uh, is it cuts us off from this participation of the unperspectival world and it's really good at that cutting but then it, it can only do that and so in our time and in his time uh, he has this idea that it's become kind of immoderate it's become deficient Right, so it just keeps slicing and cutting things down into ratio. That's the, sort of the late mental structure that that we'll mention as well. So, um, yeah, he painted this like just to kind of put us up to where we are today. He 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 painted this image, as sort of a striking, prescient image of of the perspective of a world kind of leading us into this moment of universal intolerance, where every person has their own little point of view, and there's no more. Real, like whole reality that we're all oriented and everybody has their POV. Everybody has their kind of segmented fragment of the whole. And, and you know, we're, we're specializing more um, and we all have our own totalizing worldview opposed to somebody else. And he says, you know, it kind of ends with this sort of atomization mm. and of human culture and consciousness, a sort of ultimate breakdown and fragmentation. And he saw that as kind of symbolized in, in, um, in the atom bomb during his time, sort of the splitting of the atom itself is this ultimate expression of, of ratio. Um, so <laughs> I, when, I, when I was reading that, I was just thinking like, this is sort of, he's describing, you know, what it's like to be on Facebook today, the sort of hyper fragmentation of culture that's um, on the tip yeah. of everybody. Yeah. It's like post, post truth. And I mean, there seems like there's, it's, it's interesting. That's it's very, that sounds very, um, yeah. Prophetic in a sense, cause it's definitely, kind of where we are and at the same time uh yeah it's there's it's like it's hard to tease out because there's something uh you know obviously like helpful about uh being able to differentiate from kind of mass consciousness or way of thinking but also then you know where where do we find common ground or, or some sense of common reality uh is there such a thing or whatnot um so yeah, that those are great examples. Um, and yeah, can you can can you talk a little about the kind of intersection between, or how how these worlds relate then to uh, the actual structures? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So, so in terms of, you know, it's helpful to know that biographically these three worlds that he's talking about were really kind of an early version that got more specific with the structures. Okay. Um, because, you know, the archaic magic, mythic, mental, and integral, the, the structures he starts to really use in ever present origin, but he still keeps unperspectival, perspectival, and aperspectival. So I think it could be a little confusing because they're like, okay, well, there's like these two different, um, but it was sort of his original style of, of writing. He, he was describing this emergent integral age as aperspectivity okay. um, when he was writing more about poetry. And then he started, he did a book on um, sort of the emerging sciences, quantum physics at the time. And and what Heisenberg was talking about, and he's like, okay, just like in the Renaissance, there's this new style that you're seeing in the arts, and you're seeing it in the sciences starting to like erupt in, in civilization and culture. Um, but then he got more specific, and, I, and it's more helpful. These structures are more helpful. They kind of orient us. And I didn't didn't really go into the ape perspective, but I just want to like leave a footnote for it, which is or, or kind of a place uh, a bookmark. Mm-hmm. It's essentially you know the spatiality of of perspective the kind of awakening to space out of this unperspectival world um is you know that, that that's sort of the story but then the emergence of the integral and, and the aperspectival that really kind of turned him onto all of this stuff in, in his you know in his lived life with the artists he was meeting uh was for him the the realization of time and this is it gets really confusing we'll get into that when we talk about the integral but uh for gepster time isn't clock time it is that's one facet of it, you know, linear time, you know, the seconds that move from the past to the present into the future for him, that that's just one form of time. And so this helped him, you know, differentiate, I think with the structures, because each of the structures as we go through them have a different time space orientation. Um, And another thing to, to, to remember too, since, he's always saying, you know, you have to think about all of these dynamics as a whole. It, it kind of creates a little paradox because then we're sort of distinguishing particular structures. So he's always kind of relating them back to one another. And, and I, I don't know if we can ever really find in practice a time where we were just one structure. You know, there was always something else latent. There's always some other dimensionality that's kind of co-present. And that's the whole idea behind the integral. It's a kind of um rather than just sort of unconsciously having all of these dimensions co-present in us, mm. kind of pushing and pulling, and, and one thing is repressing another, like the scientific world kind of repressed the, the, the unperspectival world. The Renaissance artists would describe their predecessors in medieval uh, times as, as being ignorant of, of, of space. You know, they describe them in a kind of a derogatory way. Like that kind of pushing away is receded and you're, at least supposed to be able to bring everything into your presence in this kind of intensified awareness, which sounds a little difficult, but um, I think we're kind of seeing it happen naturally. But anyway, so kind of taking us back to the archaic, um, Gepser describes it as, this is the most difficult to really find examples of in history because he describes it as synonymous with, with origin. I didn't even mention origin yet. <laughs> <laughs> and just to make sure, uh, I don't know if we actually maybe we can just lay out so we have the the four the four structures of consciousness that, uh, bef- leading up to the integral structure are the archaic, the magic, the mythic, and the mental. Is correct? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Just That's to right. Make sure people have that orientation, and so now we'll kind of do a, do a brief little move through each one and just um, try to get a sense of where we've been and where we're headed. Yeah.
So all of these structures move out from and are a part of the whole. And, and Gepser's a little uh, elusive for what that means, but he also makes it synonymous. He describes it as synonymous with origin, which in German is Ursprung. And I like that word because it denotes a kind of an activity. It, it implies a movement, a springing out, right? A kind of a springing forth. So there's a kind of a creative dimension. I don't know, you might call it a creative consciousness. Um, uh, you might call it, he, he avoided theological language, but I think we can maybe relate it a little bit to, you know, you know a theological, you know, origin is, is perhaps the divine, uh, divine source or God or, or something along those lines, mm. perhaps. But again, he avoided that language intentionally to not just be, you know, um, too specific about it or too partial to something. So all of these structures mutate out of origin. They're all dimensions of origin. They're all dimensions of, of the sort of whole consciousness that he describes elsewhere as the itself or the core, interestingly. Um, and the archaic is this kind of maximum latency, like George Feuerstein describes it as a maximum latency in which all of the different structures that are going to unfold are all co-present and almost dormant like a seed. They're all just kind of there, and but there's no self-consciousness of that. There's no lucidity about that. It's all just kind of a total identification um, with origin, with the whole. And so that's why it's so difficult to talk about because, you know, even, you know, if we go into like, um, you know, the phenomenology of consciousness, you know, even animals have some sense of self, you know, as much as they're very, very participatory involved in just sort of being present in, um, in their environment, you know, there's still that kind of self sense. So who knows, like, this is almost kind of adjacent to any historical examples. And he even uses just like, um, a, a Taoist quote, uh, dreamlessly, the true men of, of old times slept. Mm. Uh, and so he's so interesting about this too again and again throughout these structures in terms of their unfolding, he's always making this emphasis that they are not a strictly developmental kind of growth to higher and higher levels and that like you're more advanced than the previous one. Mm -hmm. They're just, they're different dimensionalities. They're almost mm -hmm. like a kind of a, um, uh, I don't even know, like a, a, I'll use a two dimensional image of like a mandala, right? So there's, they all kind of make the whole thing but they're not, you know, superior to one another in that sense, even yeah, think, though there is a kind of an unfolding. That's, I think that's really helpful to, to, to recognize and, and to have that, that understanding of it because it's, it changes it. it. Then if you're thinking of it as like, okay, we progressed from this to this to this and, and then, um, and there's some kind of hierarchy and, and also that they were, you know, um, if you also have the sense of not the, like you mentioned, they're they're always present. It's not that one never. Um, there was no merging whatsoever between them uh, until the integral. Um, but but this sort of uh, aspect of um, uh, high, like one one being kind of, I guess, predominant. Would you say? Yeah, that's the word I use a lot too. Mm -hmm. Actually, um, it you know it, it's almost like a kind of. Uh, uh, description of an organism that has, has different, you know, areas of the body, you know, yeah. there's, there's, they're always kind of there. Um, although that metaphor doesn't exactly work because one might be more predominant at a certain time than another, as you know, as we're saying, the unperspectiveful had this kind of, and we'll get into this, um, you know, each structure kind of masters a relationship to time and space. It kind of brings forth this 
in a very creative way um, these dimensionalities through culture. You know, they manifest through culture. This, this a structure of consciousness kind of erupts, and then human beings work with it to to realize it in their particular culture. Um, it kind of crystallizes. It kind of it's it's almost like a creative work of art in in an individual sense. You know, mm -hmm. um, that kind of you're bringing something into the world, and you have this kind of relationship with it. It's not all volitional. And then you might move on from that eventually. It doesn't mean your later works are just linearly superior. You know, it's just, there was a, there was a time and a space for that and you're bringing that into being. So, um, so, so yeah, the, the, the archaic is this total identification and um, he brings in the mythical to help us understand that too, because it's sort of timeless and spaceless. He says, you know, the archaic is zero. Um, but then he brings up Plato and he's like, um, you know, Plato describes that the soul came into being with the sky and he really tries to interpret that and what does that actually mean well for um for Gebser, you know the sky is associated with the temporics of the season of astronomy of those kinds of the cycles of time and of course you know the archetypal drama of you know we understand james hillman talks about in, in understanding sort of archetypal psychology those are the dimensions of the soul that start to come online um, so, but that's a little bit later, but he uses that as an example of well, why is this important? The earth and the sky are undifferentiated in the archaic. There's total identity. Um, but then in the magic, we get for the first time, um, it, it moves from the kind of, from zero to the point as a sort of representative symbol for him. And while it's still kind of um, um, timeless and, and, and spaceless, the kind of space in this structure is um, essentially kind of like a nexus, a kind of um, ecology or a network. So one point is all points. It's the, the mindset one enters into when they perform magic, even today. It's, it's, you know, doing this ritual, let's say in the Paleolithic cave, throwing a spear in this, in this ritualistic event at this painting is, is actually what is what tomorrow will be, and not just in a predictive capacity, not in a causal capacity, but a simultaneous capacity. The act of the ritual is the is the spell is the spelling of of, of reality. So he, he describes it as one point for all points. Um, there's an interchangeability. There's a liminality, and I get that image of like um. He doesn't use liminality, but for me, you know, just everything we know about um, uh, the Paleolithic and and even in in many indigenous cultures and societies, there's this liminality in movement and capacity to kind of enter into trance, human becoming animal. You know, that imagery is so prevalent in, in the magical structure of consciousness. Um, and so, yeah, whenever one enters into a form of trance, even today, you know, he's saying this is the magical structure. It's this capacity to, to engage in liminality and become other and to, as he says, it's kind of a doing without consciousness. And he doesn't mean this in a derogatory sense. It's like when you're in a trance, when you're doing some kind of, musical performance or when you know a creative musical performance or a kind of um a rote practice of of, of uh, i don't even know anything that's repetitious that we kind of almost lose a sense of the passage of time and space yeah. when we slip into those altered states that we call them today um this would be the kind of liminality of the magical mm -hmm. um so again i get that image of this nexus this kind of interlocking of all things and then of course with this structure too you know that human uh, consciousness as a waking perspectival ego hasn't really centered yet that the self is still kind of collectivized 
in the group dynamics and in the rest of nature. Mm. Um, so, and the spirit world, of course, the self and the spirit world, uh, of course, are always speaking and the animal world is always speaking. And it's a very acoustic space. Um, Kepser gives an example of a, a mouthless visage. He gives a couple of different examples around the world in, in cave paintings and um, the images, the image of a, a face without a mouth, he mm. thinks is very important, not actually for the eyes, although I think the eyes are important here, uh, but for the ears, for the listening, for the hearkening. And he even says to hear, you know, if you go to the German word, gehorren, it also means, horn means to, uh, gehorren means to belong, and horn means to hear. So there's this kind of intimacy of even the roots of our language that kind of speak to this hearing, collectivity, belonging, um, a sense of shared acoustic space, which now helps us understand the unperspectival cave, right? It's this acoustic simultaneity of everybody kind of being there. And um, uh, Marshall McLuhan has, uh, also talks about this, that, you know, the sacral man, the preliterate hum human being was, um, was very, very, uh, they valued uh, sound. They valued the acoustics of being in a body and, and the voice and participation and the feeling of being a being in a theater with other people and, and, and performing these things together. So, um, and I, I was going to bring up too, like why I think the eyes are important. He mentions, you know, nonverbal communication and that has to do with eyes, right? Like the image of a mouthless visage it looks so much like what we would see in, in, in just any kind of natural confrontation with, let's say, an owl or a deer or some kind of animal in the wild. Those kinds of faces and presences were, were obviously deeply, deeply present for the magical human being. So I think this sort of nonverbal communication is, is sort of what he's trying to describe here with the magical structure. And again, the sense of the passing of time is sort of elusive here. I would even say, as we know today, you know, like in terms of uh, calendar, calendrical systems, you know, we had a sense of time even back then. So even the mythical, I think, is as far back as we can trace it, the mythical was present. You know, we had lunar calendars. Um, I think there was a, a recent article that just came out about some of the paintings in, in uh, Lasso Cave and how they actually are, uh, they mirror astronomical uh, movements. So there was a sense of time here too that I think, you know, if Gepser was alive today and reading that, he'd be like, okay, so the, the mythical structure was co-present there. Interesting, you know, um, but it, it doesn't really disrail his thinking because the, these structures are all co-present varying degrees. Um, so out of the magical structure, we begin to see the mythical, and I already described this as kind of the emergence of the cycles of time. And the example he gives us is, um, is, uh, the Prince of Crete, and it's, it's a fresco, it's a wall fresco in, uh, um, from, I think, before the early Hellenistic period. Um, and, and this is sort of a good example of what Gepser likes to do with, with art. He kind of takes a thing and, and he performs an exegesis on it, and it's so fascinating sometimes the, what he does with it, because you have this prince who's standing in this wall fresco, um, he has a crown of feathers on his head. He's standing very erect and uh, the bottom of his torso, the lower half of his torso is sort of um, amidst this vegetation, these kind of grasses. And the upper part of his torso is in the sky. And behind him, there's stars. Mm -hmm. So he's like, look at this image as this kind of um, 
unfolding of human consciousness. There's the, uh, the older magical structure in which we were in this more, this kind of vital nexus of interweaving of human beings and nature, but now we're moving into the sense of the passage of cycl um, cyclical time, the movement of the stars, the movement of this kind of um, centering of consciousness into the soul and the emergence of the soul. And the emergence of the soul for Gepser kind of precipitates the emergence of the ego. Um, so he has all these, you know, examples in, in Greek myth as well, right? Um, uh, Odysseus and all these ancient uh, Greek stories are kind of stories about wrestling with the soul and understanding the soul or getting lost in the soul, like narcissist kind of getting drowned, you know, falling into the waters of his own reflection. So there's kind of this opening of inwardness that's going on. And with this structure, time and space are, are again, this um, circular movement, but that it's also polar. Right. So like you have complementary polarities of, you know, heaven and the underworld, um, life and death, these cycles that all complement one another. Um, he talks about the soul's pole in one of his chapters. So there's a cyclicality. We even have, you know, yin and yang is a good example. And he doesn't give bring this up, but um, in Mesoamerican civilizations, they, they have this very interesting complex philosophy of complementarity and everything is a cycle everything becomes its opposite so you have this sort of all over the world in terms of this mythical structure um and again this is a very advanced form of consciousness this is a kind of he describes it as a mastery of nature in the sense of nature being the, these um fine-tuning of understanding the movement of the stars and the passage of time and that kind of whole complex cosmology that we get with let's say ancient egypt or even Stonehenge, or um, uh, not um, Gobekli Tepe, um, or the Mesoamerican civilization. So there's this amazing capacity to understand and master the relationship between the earth and the sky, and that differentiation, that complementarity between the whole, the whole, the cosmos, the cosmology that you're participating in this archetypal drama, and then your soul, which is a part of that. So there's this kind of relationship between. The, the macro and the micro that that is this kind of ma a mythical structure um so so this is why i'm always like uh, uh very careful to, to emphasize the um in, in another sense you know as much as there's an unfolding going on here you can kind of see we move from the kind of the collectivity of the magical into the centering of the soul and the mythical um and this differentiation um of earth and sky there as much as there's some kind of emergence happening or unfolding, each of these have this, this uh, wondrous capacity to be in the world and master the world and understand it that are very captivating in their own rights and, and in some ways superior where, where we as moderns are inferior. Like we don't have a sense of uh, the cycles of time that you know people 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago did, that they had a whole different ontology you know, a whole different being in the world that is not inferior to our own. So I always bring that up because I think um, it's very easy to kind of sort of see this as, well, we, we woke up to scientific materialism and, and, and the measurable world and, and the waking world is, is what is exclusively real. That for him, for Gebser, is, is just the bias of the mental world, you know. Um, so should I jump into the mental yet or do you want to... Yeah, well, yeah, let's let's do the mental um and then let's come back to that because yeah, I, I something I want to say about that, but I feel like let's let's uh just maybe briefly contextualize the mental as well.
Okay. Um, so there's a lot of kind of precursors to the mental that Gebser brings up at this point. And I, I should also mention too, that since he was writing in mid-century Europe, you know, most of his examples are Western European. And he even says it in the book. He's like, I'm just studying this from my own kind of cultural tracings and, and the knowledge that I have available. And I can only speak for, as he called the Occident. Um, and later in life, he began to be a lot more open to studying other cultures and civilizations. And he traveled through throughout Asia. So I just wanted to kind of put that there too, because I'm, I'm going to be focusing on a lot of Greek myths. But um, so a few important markers for him was the emergence of um, I in, in language, in terms of utterance and speech. He uses the myth of Odysseus and he describes this sort of scene where Odysseus, wake, he washes up on the shores. And in the, in, the, in the Greek language, they even describe it as the waking shores. So there's this kind of emerging because the sea is a good image. It's a good symbol of myth. It's a good symbol of what Heraclitus described myth, right? As this kind of, you could never get to the bottom of it. It's a sort of infinite churning, um, uh, um, uh, you know, just infinite depth. There's no bottom. There's no, it can consume you. So there's this, now there's, now there is this differentiation, I think, between, um, the self and this mythical world, this mythical cosmology where the self wants to start to differentiate itself. So Odysseus wakes up on the shore and he proclaims shortly after, am Odysseus, but he doesn't say I am. He just says, am Odysseus. Um, Julian Jaynes talks about that too, is that kind of interesting use of language there. You know, there's, there's a self-consciousness, but it's a different style. It's not quite what we would consider a modern self-consciousness. Um, and Charles Taylor describes this too as the buffering of the self, this idea that, you know, the self becomes more and more differentiated from the environment, from cosmology, from nature, from spirits, from, our, you know, the whole kind of sacral world. Um, but so, so that's one example. Another example he uses is um, the, well, first of all, the ambiguity of Kronos, who devours his children, um, but then uh, he's poisoned by... I think Metis, um, which her name etymologically can be traced to uh, or can be followed up into the mental. So it's just sort of a little interesting link he, he gives us. Um, but Kronos, the image that he has, he's both kind of a, this ambiguous and, and the mythical structure is all about ambiguity. Um, he has the sickle and the sickle is both um, an image of the lunar cycles, the lunar time, this, this mythical cyclical time, but it's also... Um, an image of this sort of cutting, uh, this sort of differentiation, this slicing that we were talking about earlier with the pyramidal um, uh, mental structure and the perspectival structure. So um, he gets sort of rejected and thrown into the underworld, though. This is sort of the symbol of this older form of consciousness that's finally being overtaken. And what emerges out of that uh, for him, for Gebser, is the next myth, which is that of Athena and Zeus. And Zeus does something similar. He's very afraid about his kids being more powerful than him. So he does the same thing. Um, he, he, he devours, I think, his, his wife. <laughs> um, and, but out of that anyway, you know, Athena gets born anyway, but not as a natural birth, but splitting through his head. And Athena comes out of his head fully armored with a spear, She's, she's obviously the kind of the patron goddess of Athens, 
where the economy emerges. And so Gebser kind of constellates all of these myths and images and even associations in the culture with uh, the emergence of philosophy as this kind of crystallizing of this new mental structure that's rupturing that mythical membrane, that enclosed mythical space, the oceanic mythical space, and, and cutting through it with this new perspectival-oriented mental structure that is more about space. And he even says the word mental. Um, we're talking about menace, but menace uh, and men's are associated with wrath, wrathfulness, directed wrath, directed will. There's this new centered self that can direct itself um, in space. And, and is oppositional, you know, wrath is oppositional. You know, you're angry at someone or something. So there's a very kind of a militaristic aspect to this. And even Athena is, a, is another patron of, of war right, as well, and war and rules and civilization and, and a whole bunch of different things. But um, so there's this kind of breaking out of all of this um, oceanic mythical orientation um, that has a cyclical form of time and this new emergence, and even McLuhan has a, a similar description here um, in the emergence of the Greek alphabet and writing systems and the kind of breaking down and the cutting up of embodied acoustic language into this more abstract form of expression and communication, which allows us to philosophize better. Um, but still, you know, it, there's this kind of abstraction and a cutting and an awakening of the self. But in this period, I think it's, it's good to remember that this was healthy. This was kind of... Um, as Gebser describes it, you know, this was this helped us to differentiate ourselves from myth. It helped us to gain self-insight and not just kind of be reclaimed and drowned into these waters again. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, a lot of these early Greek philosophers obviously were very active in mysticism. A lot of them were, were still, you know, participating in the Eleusian mysteries and, and had these very complex systems of geometry and measurement that were related to the sort of esoteric dimensions or the invisible realms. So, you know, it's kind of ambiguous. It's still a little ambiguous, but it's this emergent cutting. And that kind of, um, uh, you know, that, that sort of starts there. And Gebser also brings up that, you know, in the Roman period and in, in, in that period, in the late period of it with, let's say, like Pompeii, um, you start to get examples of like pastoral landscapes and, um, you know, of course, the human anatomy and the way that they're masterfully able to explore that and, and, and demonstrate it in both Greece and Rome. So like you get kind of an early version of the mental that sort of breaks down with the with uh, you know the collapse of the Roman period and the emergence, it only comes out later with the perspectival and the Renaissance. So it's not exactly linear either. There can be kind of ebbs and flows of these structures as they're trying to crystallize and, and realize themselves. So, um, yeah, okay, that, that that sort of takes us through the mental. Yeah, yeah, and I th I think what you said there, I mean, it's helpful because because what when before the mental, what you know, when I sort of bookmarked when we bookmarked that. Point, you know, I was I was gonna say that you it can kind of go either way. Like y we can, um, you know, you could we can look back at, at the pre mental as uh, you know, um, you know, archaic in in the sort of derogatory sense, right? Or it can also be like um, I, I, when I found I found reading reading a in your book some particularly like the magical and and some of the mythic you know there's like there's this sense of um i felt like a sense of longing to go back like to, that's like oh well that you know we've gotten we've gotten so far in our heads and into the material and the rational and logical and i 
I was like, oh, take me back to the campfire, you know. And so that you can kind of um, idealize any of the structures in a certain sense, like depending on your particular disposition, I think. And um, it's helpful to kind of recognize like what you said um, about, you know, we needed that at that time. That was that was we needed this particular sh sort of shift to help us. Um, there was so much, you know, that we. Uh, you know, I could talk about being, you know, let's go back to the, to the magical, but we wouldn't have writing, right. You know, or, or we wouldn't have <laughs> rational thought necessarily. So, you know, we don't, we don't um, necessarily want to simply go back um, to some sort of, um, you know, idealized uh, version of it. Yeah. Yeah. There's um in the book, I play with the concept of ontology a little bit. Um, I, I know I'm not quite using it correctly as sort of, you know, uh, Mark Fisher taking it from Derrida was describing it more in a much more contemporary sense as a sort of um, uh, failed future, kind of a future we were meant to have and it sort of haunts us now because it collapsed and um, perhaps, you know, uh, there's an aspect of that. But in, in another sense, you know, not having such a linear sense of a failed future, this idea that these structures, um, when, when they collapse and we have enough distance from them, um, you know, th there's a kind of a, a disintegration process that happens in these structures where moving into a new structure doesn't mean that you like completely understand the magical and now you're all about the mythical. Like in some latent sense, you know, there is an unfolding, but then in another sense, you lose that participation. Like Gepser describes this. Mm. Um, uh, it, it's interesting because it's kind of, it almost sounds like a traditionalist angle in that like, oh, you know, the closer we are to the earlier structures, the closer we are to origin, where we have a proximity to the whole. And that kind of wanes, it wanes away and, and we, we gain distance from the whole. And he has this kind of really condemning description of, of progress and modernity where it's like, you know, any kind of progress is just progress away from origin. Mm. So, and, and further remoteness and alienation. Um, so he has this ambiguity with, what, what this process is doing, right? And so I think that longing is, is actually very valid. It's, it's this sense that we, in some ways, are f the furthest away from origin because yeah. we are the most spatial and the most kind of cut off from this participation, um, cut off from these kind of the wholeness of our being. But, um, you know, the way he's also describing it is that this remoteness somehow has something to do with this, with the whole, with the whole transformation of bringing everything into this sort of super lucid, conscious state um it's not meant to be seen as a linear thing it's kind of a almost like a rubber band effect in a way you know we're just sort of pulling away very very far and creating this sense of self-autonomy but i don't think we're meant to stay in this kind of mm. uh, uh feeling of being cut off yeah. so i totally empathize with you and your feeling of like you know there's a potency to the magic that is like oh that's so it, it's relieving it's like it's a part of the modern world that I think has been the most repressed. Yeah. And so I think it, it kind of um, shows up as a pathology today too, mm -hmm. in terms of Kepser talks about that too, the, the really intimate relationship between the mental and the magic and, and how the mental is a kind of um, in its deficient form when it's not kind of realizing the mental is a healthy structure, but when it's kind of outlived its, its, its period of crystallization and realization uh, we kind of enter in this deficient mode where um, you know, the deficient magic gets tied in with the deficient mental yeah. and that magic and machines and making and all have this kind of uh, 
relationship to each other. And I find that so interesting because there's so much great scholarship about that, like uh, Joshua Ramey's Hermetic Deleuze, um, Deleuze himself kind of tying, thinking back to the sort of occult capacity, right? To follow, think it's to follow the witch's flight. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, all the fun countercultural books like Eric Davis's Technosis, this kind of weird intimacy between technology and the occult is, is always present. And um, I, I think it is a kind of a hauntology because it's, it's sort of what we're repressing in ourselves. And it just always shows up, you know, it just always shows up in the, in the late mental that would deny it the most. Yeah. Well, it's because, you know, another thing I was thinking about uh, in terms of this stuff is, is that we're, I mean, sort of like goes, we haven't maybe explicitly talked about this, but we're, you know, we're talking about when we're talking about consciousness, right? We're talking about the ways in which we've perceived reality, right? Or, or it's like, I think when you think about I don't know. I hear the word consciousness and I, and I think very much like brain or I, I kind of have this, this preconceived idea about like, uh, it's, a, it's all like, um, somehow, uh, subjective or, or it's, it's about like, um, the evol- sort of the evolution of, of something about just us, but, but it's as you've been giving examples of, you know, the, the, sort of perspective shifts, right? We, we are talking about um, perceiving the world in various fa- facets. And, you know, one of, the, one of those that I think is really interesting and, and um, as we're seeing right now, you know, this sort of rekindling of an animist worldview, or, uh, a more of a sense, people are, I think, it seems, beginning to become once again more tuned in or interested in tuning into the spirit world into invisible entities and beings or or you could say energy and um and this is one you know i think in terms of thinking about what's been repressed by the mental that's like such a such a key one and you feel it sort of surging back and so maybe that's also that longing for the magical is it, it is a kind of balancing uh, not that we want to stay there, but that we absolutely do need to reintegrate those back into our way of perceiving the world in order to survive as, you know, and, and to, you know, have a realistic um, understanding of how to how to live on this planet. Right. Because it's like that seems to have gotten kind of obscured. Right. By by the uh, our whole rational materialist thing. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm just in some way, uh, just, just kind of sharing what, what's coming to mind in terms of thinking about like ontology, perception of reality, and in particular around this notion of animism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, um, that's really interesting for me. You know, McLuhan speaks more to this insight and I, I've, it was, um, William Irwin Thompson who really kind of made that conscious link between McLuhan and Gepser. Um, he wrote about it in Coming Into Being and in some of his other works. And um, it's this idea that, you know, McLuhan always talked about electronic culture as as retrieving the sacral world of the pre-literate 
human being, preliterate human consciousness that that was more embodied, that was more participating in this in this wholeness that we're describing, and um, you know had its own sense of of knowledge and ontology and 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 um, literacy in terms of not the text but the world as a kind of the world as a kind of text, you know, with with spelling and language and imagination. So. Um, I don't know if you would describe it that way, but I, I like a lot of writers who, in the contemporary that describe, you know, the world as text, like, uh, uh, well, I mean, besides Derrida, I mean, more parapsychology and religious studies thinking like uh, Jeffrey Kripal really loved his work with yeah, yeah, kind of hermeneutics. Yeah. Um, so, and I think there's an intimacy there too with the magic, with the spelling, right? And the kind of, the uh, Gebser talks about language throughout the whole book. He, he, he always brings up um language itself and the words he's using and tracing them back and kind of going like, hey, if you follow the root of this word, um, you can actually see where it was, it began to mean one thing, but then if you trace it earlier, it has ambiguity. And if you trace it even earlier, there's even kind of more kind of unity. It means both, like um, even like myth. Myth means to open or close the mouth. And it means to speak, but it also means to be silent. So there's this kind of polarity even in the word myth itself that speaks to that structure. Um, so yeah, language, it's very interesting, but I only bring this up because, um, you know, if, in electronic culture, perhaps there is this, um, and this is what maybe Gepser didn't write about as explicitly, because he was writing about negative examples of the retrieval of magical and the mythical, like the uh, kind of, one-pointedness, the totalitarian one-pointedness of you being, let's say, uh, nation nationalism and fascism in, in Europe at the time, to completely identify with one view and and totally submit yourself to this kind of collectivist act against another. It's it's this oppositionalism that's related to the perspective. But if you even think of the image of perspective as that pyramidal thinking that cuts and cuts, eventually it just brings everything down to little points, right? Is, everybody's got their little point. But then that kind of retrieves the magical in a, in a weird way, one point for all points, but not in a healthy way. You know, it becomes this kind of totalizing oppositional tribalism rather than a kind of a, a participatory collectivism that is, that is more of a sacred. Um, so it, it's being retrieved in unhealthy ways. And I think the reason why it was being retrieved in unhealthy ways is because of how much it was repressed, how, how deficient the mental had become. It was sort of um, uh, succumbing to all of these kind of diseases of consciousness in which the older forms of consciousness were coming up in negative ways and kind of... Um, in kind of a demonic way, mm -hmm. right? He always talks about how, you know, the mental used to be, used to have a relationship with myth in the soul. It used to be, it gave you insight into, into your soul. He has this example of, I think it's from the New Testament, um, or maybe, I forget exactly what the textual reference is, but one person says to another person about a dream, about a bird, and he says, you know, the partridge is an image of your soul. And it's this idea that the mental can give insight into myth. It's kind of like depth psychology. It's kind of what Jung was bringing back. It's kind of bringing the mental mind into understanding and reconnecting with the soul that he talked about was so important. Um, but if we don't do that, then we become, you know, as, as, as uh, Deleuze says, right, we become, you know, um, the, the true monsters are the insomniacs that kind of dream up these monsters because they're, they're, they don't allow themselves to sleep. Mm. So sort of this insomnia of the, of the mental, which is immoderately dominating consciousness mm. that actually ironically loses the capacity to gain self insight and then becomes hijacked. The ego actually becomes hijacked by all of these different 
archetypes and forces and things that are playing out in these older structures that are repressed. So Yeps are kind of saw the 20th century like that. Um, but I think, you know, maybe that was a phase and, and we're kind of entering into this different phase now where, as you're saying, you know, animism and, um, you know, indigenous spirituality, indigenous traditions, and kind of an awareness of that, yeah. we're, we're, we're a lot less, I mean, it's still prevalent in our economic and in, in and militaristic policies, but I think in terms of culture and human culture, we're a lot less positivistic about, you know, well, we're these evolved, advanced, civilized beings and they're savage. Like that's completely not okay to, and not a good sense. It's not a sentiment that's popular anymore. And I think that's a really good thing. And I think electronic culture has has helped us to retrieve the the magical in a new way, in a a healthier way that um, hopefully Gepser would be happy with, you know, seeing this take place yeah so let's talk a little about we're kind of getting into this notion of a, a crisis that precipitates uh the into move into integral consciousness and how that seems to be playing out and where we're headed with this idea of integral consciousness uh and how how that kind of happens like uh, what what might we be moving into so it's it's a loaded question and there's a lot to unpack, but there are just a few things that maybe we can kind of wrap up with for now. And I think, as I was saying before, you know, as we were just talking about the, these different structures seem to be coming up from underneath the surface and, and haunting us. And um, in the 20th century, we've seen, this kind of explosion of understanding that you know there are other dimensions of reality that are very important. Uh, Jung and the soul, uh, the discovery of the unconscious. You know the 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 kind of um, articulation by James Hillman that you know the the soul kind of shrunk from the world in this sort of diffuse state and moved inside into the unconscious, into the self. So you know what Gebser was looking at in the early early twentieth century was a sort of eruption of the immeasurable, the the um, the non-spatial, and that's a mix, I think, of both the unperspectival and this idea of this aperspectival, this sense of all of the structures of consciousness in this moment of crisis, in this kind of intensification point, need to all kind of be online. The, the, we need the magical and the mythical to be retrieved in a conscious, healthy integration, um, and the mental needs to kind of restore its own, it's, it's inflated, it's kind of like like a dying star, it's this sort of red giant, you know, the, the perspectival hypertrophied ego, like Epster describes it as, and a lot of other thinkers I think have, have sort of written along these lines. So, so how do we kind of diminish the kind of um, bloatedness of the perspectival world, gain a better relationship to these other worlds? And for Gepser, this is almost, um, it's a kind of um, a quality of transparency and the structures are never entirely volitional. They're kind of, there's something going on in consciousness that, that is, is um, erupting, that's breaking forth, that's, that's kind of um, surging forth, and, and human beings can develop a relationship to it. And I think in this moment, right, in this kind of crisis moment, uh, it's this transparency. It's a sudden, you know, the walls have suddenly come down between everything. Uh, and, and so Gebser, he describes the integral world as this, Yes, it's a, it's a, it's this understanding of time, but time is wholeness. Time is not this linear dimensionality that goes from past to present to future, as I was mentioning before. That's just mental time. That's just the spatial mental time. There's also mythical time, the rhythmicity 
the reality of kind of the archetypes and the seasonal round, you know, for those of many people who study, probably listen to the show, you know, they, they're aware of those cosmologies and, and respect them. There's so many more people that respect that today and understand it as this different form of time. Um, and of course, the magical, like we were talking about. So all of those are actually valid time-space relationships, valid spiritual creative dimensionalities of, of, of the real, as, as J.F. Martel, one of your guests, my friend, also said, he always says the real. I, I always use that as a kind of a stand-in for origin or the whole, you know, it's not meant to be a measurable, finite thing, but kind of an inexhaustible mystery. So all of these are dimensions of the whole of origin. And so for whatever reason in this kind of unfoldment right now, the whole wants to presentiate itself. It's everything needs to come to the forefront in a conscious way. Yeah. Um, and so the consciousness that we need for that is this intensification. Uh, Gebser was not a contemplative, but yet throughout the book, he's describing the need to be, have this kind of lucidity that to, to consciously retrieve and integrate the magical and the mythical and the archaic and consciously not retrieve the mental, but understand what it is, kind of to see through it. And that's why I call the book Seeing Through the World, right? Mm. So all of these structures have to be co-present in a sort of simultaneous. And again, talked about the same thing back uh, in mid-century when he was describing, for him, Sorry. he was looking at Western culture as well. You cut out for Sorry? a second. Who, who did oh. you just refer to Sorry. as? McLuhan. McLuhan, gotcha. Yeah, he, he had this kind of... Um, understanding of simultaneity of electronic culture that it retrieved that acoustic unperspectable space of everything all at once but in a conscious way yeah. and he uses finnegan's wake as an example um very i mean james joyce is very difficult to to understand for anybody but um McLuhan has a very interesting interpretation of joyce in that he was kind of an integral uh artist in the sense that he understood that we were at this precipice of cult precipice of cultural transformation and the pre-literate human being, the literate human being, and the sort of, not, not to use, I'm using it in kind of a linear way, but a post-literate, whatever's after this epoch of, of the mental and the perspectival, all have to be co-present in us. And so Gepser always describes the integral structure as um, this kind of playful wholeness where the past and the present and the future co-inform one another in this sort of multi-dimensional or he uses the word amensional, kind of like a perspectival whole that, you know, you know, just as, you know, the ancestors can be present for you in the kind of mythical and magical, the world of the dead, you know, so can the future, so can the unborn. Mm -hmm. And it's this kind of new, it's a very poetic description, but I think it, that poetry kind of speaks to this new dimensionality of consciousness that, um, you know, Le Guin, I use this quote in my book where she basically says to paraphrase her, which is further away from us, the undead or the unborn. Mm. No, that abyss between the undead and the unborn, uh, that's what's going away. That's what's sort of dropping away. It's kind of opening up for us. And that's scary, right? <laughs> that's sort of overwhelming. So there's a kind of a crisis of consciousness that's taking place today. And, and Gepser tried to articulate it in many ways, but um, one of the things he describes is time eruption. And it's this idea that if time is this amensional wholeness that is intensifying everything, then perhaps in a similar way to uh, the unperspectable medieval world kind of being broken open and burst open and ruptured by the mental cutting uh, pyramidal form of, of, of perception and thinking, you know, like the dialectic, just is that kind of cut, that kind of unperspectable round. The aperspectival 
it's not cutting exactly, but it's sort of bursting through everything. Time is a kind of a phenomenon, an anxiety, um, an acceleration. You know, as long as the mental tries to see time as chronological and linear and spatial, time keeps kind of bursting those systems and complexifying those systems and ramping up everything and speeding up everything. And so for me, of course, I use the example of like cyberpunk as a great genre that sort of encapsulates that, you know, it expresses this, this image of the um, hyper trophied ego and the inflated perspectival world through these mega cities and through these runaway technologies that we, we have, we have a sense that time has run away from us. And this Gepser always points out, this is the incapacity of the perspectival mental structure of consciousness to, to understand time as this wholeness. Um, so the, for Gepser really the, the answer to all these crises and these problems um, is, is the capacity to leap into this new understanding of time as whole. And he uses Picasso as an example. He uses all these other examples, but just for short, this intensity in which past, present, and future co-informing one another and co-constitute all of these different expressions, mythical time, magical timelessness, archaic latency, the mental, spatial, uh, linear temporicity, all of those make up this kind of higher, I don't even want to use higher because that would still be spatial, but the amensional reality is kind of intensification. And it's almost difficult to even imagine what that is. Mm -hmm. But as he's describing this kind of like racing forth of history and revolution and this anxiety about time crisis, we're dealing with that today with the Anthropocene and climate change. You know, yeah. there's a sense that we're running out of time. And I think it's because we, it's only that kind of simultaneity of consciousness that can really survive and work with what the crisis that we're dealing with right now, which is unforeseen consequences, which is limit this idea of limitless growth and expansion uh, of, of perspectivalism, sort of like, you know, capitalism is sort of this endless linear growth, right? This endless consumption, this endless kind of, um, as Heidegger says, ready to hand, right? Sort of like the world is just a standing reserve. Mm -hmm. This perspectival world is done and it's sort of done, un it's undone by its own, its own limitation. And so the only way to kind of leap into this new world is to kind of start to think in these new styles in which we're thinking of the whole and in which, you know, we're not just seeing things perspectively anymore. I just had a flash when you were saying that of like, uh, you know, we get these messages of like, uh, life is short and, uh, you know, you don't ha you use your time wisely and you don't have, uh, much time. And, uh, you know, I, I obviously there's there's value in that, but I, I there's also you know I think what you just said made me kind of just like have this little insight around the limitations of that form and and in the way the ways in which that's kind of a this this maybe capitalist kind of um, uh, imposition on our um, dream time in a sense like. Uh, you know this this way of kind of and that could be personally or could be kind of uh socio-culturally this idea of like time is running out and um but it it relies on this linear um sense of 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 seeing time and and seeing our kind of uh, way of being in the world as um you know very kind of rigid and linear in a certain sense um, yeah, I don't know. That's a random little something that came to mind when you were saying that. 
Um, and you know, I, I also feel like this, this, I, I love the way I've been getting into Deleuze and Guattari lately. And, um, you know, just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much I, I like, you know, it's, but I'm very drawn to their work and, and I loved the way that you were integrating, uh, a lot of, of their thought and, and kind of making connections. And I, I feel like um, that sort of non-conceptual way of being that, uh, more like rhizomatic or non-linear, the sense of like um, lines of flight. It seems like I, it's, it's interesting the way there seems to be a lot of parallel there between their work and, uh, and Gebser's and, yeah, I don't know. You obviously were seeing that. I'm I'm curious if you have any further thoughts on that, or or just yeah, just continuing this theme of the kind of nonlinear, nonconceptual, and why that's important to understand in the way we move forward. Hmm. So I, I think it's um, you know, the, this concept of the amensional that we were talking about before is this idea that if you are no longer in linear time, then time becomes a kind of a, uh, I'll use the word multidimensional object or, or, or kind of organism that you can kind of enter in from different ways and relate to in different ways. Mm. And I love how Deleuze and Guattari um, use that concept in, in Thousand Plateaus in that you can, yes, you can read the book linearly, but it's not really, at least I've been, I've read that you're not supposed to really kind of read it from cover to cover you can kind of go in anywhere it's 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 rhizomatic you kind of enter into any point in the assemblage um, of the interconnected interconnected points so that's both the kind of a magical understanding where one point is all points but it's also this kind of again is that kind of retrieving the magic in this this now kind of super conscious way um, super wakeful way in which you know you're understanding this is also kind of an integral dimensionality that you can move in anywhere um, so I really love that. I think Deleuze and Quattari have this style that is very aperspectable, you know, that it, they're still very difficult to understand. And I'm with you there. And like, I, I don't know if I grok everything that they're saying, but um, there's a style to them, you know, that just reading them as um, I have a, a book, um, uh, Deleuze's translation on Spinoza, Practical mm -hmm. Philosophy. And mm -hmm. the forward to the book mentions that, you know, just like Spinoza is difficult, so is Deleuze, and you should read them as you would read a poem and, and have these like poetic engagements, these poetic meeting points that the text makes sense and, and comes alive. And so don't worry about kind of understanding how the argument is built up. You really just kind of look for those moments. So there's this kind of style, I think, of, think, of thinking, you know, a new form of concept that is a sort of nonlinear assemblage. And, you know, Manuel Delanda talks about that as well. Um, he's bringing kind of assemblage assemblages and and uh, into kind of network thinking and um in sociology and the social sciences so i think this style of thinking is is really akin to what gepser was describing in the a perspectival and he was doing this you know in the 1940s which is ridiculous you know um he was still very structured you know he still kind of carefully builds he wasn't sort of present for that kind of eruption in in, in sort of postmodern literature um he, you know, he died in like 1973, so he really wasn't seeing that wave of new, new literature, new philosophy. But still, there's a style, there's a poetry, there's a, 
efficacy to Deleuze and Guattari that is very much, I think, along these lines of flight to these new discontinuous plateaus, you know, and I think even thinking of the structures that way as these lines of flight into these new plateaus of being is a great way to, to, to perceive them uh, rather than a kind of a, a strict linear unfolding order of, in progression, which Kepser is constantly trying to tell you, don't do that, don't think like that. Time is a whole and somehow even something like you know, the emergence of human consciousness is kind of waking up, moving from the dreaming to the waking into whatever the aperspectival is, shouldn't be seen as, as linearly as, as even that description um, lends itself to. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. Well, do you feel like we, uh, we should probably wrap it up, but do you feel like we um, kind of covered the integral um thoroughly enough i obviously you know there's no uh no such thing but um do you feel like we kind of got where we needed to get or is there any more to say before we kind of conclude i mean i think that would take another podcast but (laughs) it's really interesting to see how the concepts are being articulated and concretized today. And I think, you know, we, just as a kind of a closing statement, you, we really can see it, the aperspectival world kind of emerging everywhere, especially in, in the concept of the Anthropocene and this whole question about climate change and, and unforeseen consequences and, and, and how to live with uh, a world of unforeseen consequences. Tim Morton is a, is a good, I think he's kind of an aperspectival thinker and, and his style in that, you know, he, he has this, um, I was just reading this yesterday, um, in his being ecological, he's describing, you know, the world is actually kind of flickery. It's kind of like a flickery thing. It's not a kind of a stasis. A pers- I mean, my, my language would be a perspectival stasis that you can, you can pin down reality as a thing. It's this kind of a, a mystery, you know, objects kind of open up and things are open and things are mysterious. And it's really difficult to, to, to live in that world if you're coming from the perspectival. But we're, we are living in that world. And I think in many ways we are dealing with this time crisis with climate change and, and the network of things that we're doing that had unforeseen consequences in the future that had latencies that we weren't aware of. So I don't think we can get rid of that. I don't think we can get back to like a, a, a truth world in this post-truth world, in this post-perspectival world in terms of, you know, getting back and retreating from this strange new world. But there's, there's something in these new styles of thinking with relation to climate change and the Anthropocene and this sort of removing of the boundaries between nature and culture, as we were talking about earlier, the spirit world and animism, consciousness itself kind of being in, in even a lamp or an object or this, this whole interesting kind of opening of, of, of being, you know, it, it not a kind of a finitude, not a kind of a, a perspectival nailing down of what things are, but an opening up of what things are and the sort of dynamism and amensionality that we were describing. Like if we can somehow embody that, I think we'll be okay in terms of this, this crisis, or at least we'll, we'll have done our, our best to, to bring in this integral structure um, right when it's, when, when it's needed. So I guess that's my only statement, you know, like there's a lot of applications today and um that's what I, what I hope people, when they read Gepser, they can kind of understand, like, he got this new style of thinking that um, he saw latent in his own time. And it makes sense being an integral thinker. He's all about this 
nonlinearity of, of, of time. So he understood that even in his own time, because his time is in some sense ours. It's yeah. kind of transformation from the perspectival to this new strange a perspectival world. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, Let, let's, let's work on that together. You know, I think what you're doing is, is very much on point with all of that. And, um, you know, CIS, your school, you know, they're always bringing that home, you know, just really bring that in how we need these new styles of thinking um, and being and relating to the world. So any way we can amplify that, clarify it, lean into it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems like you're doing that too with your, uh, be the sort of bigger picture of your work. Um, can you talk a little about Nora learning and, and what you're up to with that? Sure. Yeah. That's um, really short story. It's just, it, I wanted to be able to have a place to teach, to have sort of a non-academic space to offer classes. And I'm always geeking out with fellow scholars. And I know that there's a hunger for this kind of learning space that's not necessarily in a college setting. Yep. Um, and is, you know, I think the one thing that we need today, like what I do with Revolor Press too, they're, they're kind of synonymous with each other. It's, it's, creating culture it's sort of education publishing literature citing each other um having that kind of traditional role of the public intellectual but in this new time you know podcasts are a good way to do that but so are online classes and yeah. uh, any way to engage people with these new styles of thinking so that's sort of neuro in a nutshell just kind of bring that into the the, the pedagogical question and yeah. just trying to experiment with that yeah well, we'll put definitely put the, the link uh, there in the bio and to uh, to all your to relevant projects um, in uh, in the show notes. That is um, so that people can have a look and and check out more about what you're up to and um, maybe get involved too. It's uh, if it seems like you're you've really got some some great uh, things in the works there. So, thanks so much, Jeremy, for taking the time. Uh, this was great. Really appreciate um, your your writing and your thought and getting a chance to talk with you about it. Likewise, thank you, Dan. This has been great. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>